You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning. It's great to see you guys today. Like Joanna said, my name's Elliot, and we are going to continue our series in the book of James, where we're um, looking at what it means to be street smart, to not just know what the Bible says, but actually take it and put it into practice, which is uh, one of the major themes in the book. But before we get into that, um, a quick update on our uh, family, because uh, a few weeks ago, July 2nd, um, we welcomed our fourth child, a little boy, into the world. So baby Alden was born um, on July 2nd. It's one of those things where it's like, man, it's already been a month? Crazy. And then the other party is like, it's only been a month? This is crazy. So um, it is, we are having a lot of fun. Um, the kids are having fun, um, helping out, doing different things uh, with him to help out around the house. Uh, actually, his, um, his two-and-a-half-year-old sister, Ivy, we, were, we weren't nervous about how she was going to respond, but we were a little curious how she was going to respond to not being the baby anymore. And she's responded really, really well, and she is like, she's so in tune with him and his needs. And so she'll be in one part of the house, and then she hears his little infant cries, and she, like, she stops what she's doing. She's like, he's crying, he's crying. And then she goes and runs and she's been telling people we haven't heard her say this but other people have told us that she's been going around saying that she's in charge of changing all the diapers and that Allie and I just throw them away but it's really her responsibility to change them which it's the other way around but um anyways so it's pretty funny we're we're having fun we're adjusting to being a family of six all in all I mean we're a month in but all in all um I think we're doing okay I think we're doing okay (laughs) Uh, we're a little tired. Allie is really tough. My wife is so tough. I just keep, you know, each time I'm like, man, this is exhausting. And she is really tough. So that's one of my main takeaways. But right now, our family, uh, one of the things that we are focusing on in our home with having a four-week-old is we're focusing on getting some kind of a schedule, getting some kind of a schedule specifically for him so he, he kind of knows what his day is going to look like. He can kind of know this is the rhythm of the day. These are when things are going to happen. So we're trying to focus on um, getting on a schedule. And we, we do have a plan, and so one of the main things of conversation, even this morning, before I came in this morning, that was one of the things we talked about, is how can we uh, work this plan and take it and put it into practice? And we've got a plan because with the first child, our first daughter, um, there were some a few things that were a little challenging at the very beginning, and so we had to have her on a schedule right away. And I think it lined up with her personality And so she just got right on a schedule, and everything was going smooth. And so we kind of started to think, wow, this this really isn't that hard. (laughs) And then our second child came along, and he was a major wake-up call. Because it was like, no matter what we did, it it took forever to get anything figured out. And then I don't even really know if we did figure it out. (laughs) So now that we're on to the fourth, we really understand, okay, we need a plan. And just like any plan, a plan that you do this, you do that, you do the other, a plan that helps get him on a schedule, helps him kind of understand what he can expect throughout his day. And so we, we have a plan, and we are going about figuring out how to, how to work this plan. And this is, a, this is a common approach to life. We all, we all do this as we go through the various areas of life. As we, we develop a plan, we kind of analyze, okay, this is what's going on. We figure out a plan, and then we, we commit to working that plan. And this is actually a really wise approach to life. And so as we go through there, there are different areas that we plan. With our children, we have education plans where we want them to get a good education and um, go through school and do well and then get into a good university. We have education plans for our children. We have, 
We have nutrition and fitness plans for ourselves. We want to get stronger. We want good immune systems. We have plans for marriage, different formulas where if we, if we do this, that, and the other, then it says that it'll result in a stronger and healthier marriage. There are business plans, retirement investing plans, church growth formulas and plans. I mean, you just go on and on down the list. It's, it's a good thing. It's a wise thing to identify a plan and then work the plan. And then there's the realization that it's not just, not just that we need a plan, but we need a, we need a good plan because not all plans are created equal. There are some approaches to parenting that do a better job producing mature, well-rounded adults than other plans do. There are some, some diets that actually make the body stronger, make the immune system function better than other diets. There are, there are business plans that result in a stronger company that produces more profit. So we understand that not all plans are created equal. We need to do the work of figuring out a plan and working the plan and making sure that we've got a good plan. And if you pay attention to what's going on, something that you're going to see is that people that are, that are successful and effective as they go through life, often they, they do this. They figure out a good plan and they work that plan. This last week as I've been watching the Olympics, this is something that's come up again and again. Actually, with one of the um, swimmers, Katie Ledecky, who has had a tremendous Olympics, and I think she's now considered the greatest female swimmer in U.S. history, she, you, you listen to the plan that she had, and it goes back before she ever got to Tokyo, before she ever even left the States, she had figured out the timing of all her different races that she was going to have to compete in. So she worked with a nutritionist, and okay, here's the food that I need to eat, and what time of day, and when do I need to sleep, where can I rest, and she figured out this incredibly detailed plan that she started working before she ever arrived in Japan. And she did all this to set herself up for success so that her body and her mind could be as sharp and she could perform at her best when she got there. So we understand that it's wise to figure out a plan and then to work the plan. But something happens as we do this. As we identify these plans and we work them, what happens is we start to grow in experience. We figure out what works, what doesn't work. We make tweaks and adjustments along the way. We see improvements. We start to experience success based on what we're doing, based on how we're working the plan. And then we have a tendency, as this takes place, we have a tendency to start to think that we are the ones determining the outcome. That we're the ones, you know, we work this plan, we're, we're adjusting it, we're tweaking it, and then over time we start to think that we actually can control what's going to happen. We can control the future. If we work at it hard enough, if we're smart enough, if we adjust in the right ways, then we are going to be the ones that determine the outcome. And this passage that we're going to look at today in James chapter 4, this is exactly the attitude that James is addressing in this passage. He's addressing this attitude that we are the ones that can control what is happening. So this is what James writes in James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. He says this, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Something we've been talking about in this series in James is how direct he is. So I'm just going to warn you up front. We're at one of those passages where James holds nothing back. He is incredibly direct with his audience and with us of saying, hey, this is, this is an issue and we need to address it. 
And when we, when we read this, specifically the first verse that talks about today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, we read that and we think, what's his problem? I mean, aren't they just good planners? I mean, aren't they just, you know, this sounds like a good business plan and they've spent time, you know, researching it and developing it and they're going to go and work their plan. What, why, is he, why is he being so direct and so straightforward with them? Well, his problem is not with their plan. His problem is in that they're presuming they can control what happens. I mean, pay attention to how it says this. It says, so what he's saying is they, they presume they can control when something happens, today or tomorrow. It doesn't really matter the timing because they can control when it happens. They can control where something will happen, this city or that city. They can control how long something's going to take. You know, we'll spend a year there. They can control what's required to get the outcome they want. We'll carry on business and we'll make money. So he's, he's writing them not to address their planning, but he's, he's addressing this attitude that they have that they're the ones that are going to determine what happens in the future, that they can actually control the outcome. And this attitude of theirs, actually in this verse, it can be summed up in one, one word in this verse, sums up their whole attitude. Let me read it again and see if you can catch it. He says, they say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Do you get the word? The, their attitude is wrapped up in the word will. We will do this. We are the ones that are going to determine this outcome. We're going to determine how long it's going to take. We're going to determine what it takes to make this happen. That's the attitude. And if we think about it, we often have the same attitude. I will do this. I will do that. I will go to this school. I'll get this education. I will buy this house. I will have kids. I will make sure my kids have a better upbringing than I did. I will work five more years and then I'll retire. I will, I will, I will. This is an attitude that we often have, this exact same attitude that he's talking about. And actually, if we think about it, this is a bit of a challenge for us because this attitude of I will make something happen, this is actually very, very native for us. I mean, we, deep down, we really think, without even often being aware of this, I often really think that my will is the primary factor that determines what's going to happen in the future. And there's experience that we point to in coming to this conclusion. I mean, we don't just wake up one day and say, oh, it's my will that's going to determine it. I mean, in the past, there, there have been things that we've wanted and we've gone after them, and we've come up with plans, and we've worked the plans, and we've made adjustments along the way and tweaks. And so we've come to this conclusion that, well, what made it happen was, was me and my will. I applied my will, and I made it happen. So then over time, we start to come to this conclusion, and we expand it, not just from, okay, I experienced this in the past, but, well, that means that in the future, I can actually put my head down and apply my will, and I can make the future work out the way that I want it to. And there's one word that James used to describe this attitude, and it's in verse 16. This is what he writes. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. It's the one word that describes this attitude, your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Now, we hear that. Again, we, we read this verse, and we think, well, what's his problem? They're just planners. He's saying, well, the problem is they presume they can control the future. And he calls it arrogant, and we kind of pause, and we go, no, how is that arrogant? Isn't that just the way life works? I mean, isn't that what you're supposed to do? You're just supposed to apply your will and make it happen? This is really often how we think life works. Actually, this is how we're told life works. You know, if you pay attention to different books that are being written and kind of the self-help or personal development category or motivational speakers or the stories often in our society that we repeat, 
it's often this idea. We're trying, they're trying to convince us. They're telling us that your will, if you would just apply your will, if you would just believe it, if you'd start to think this way, you can determine what's going to happen. I mean, paying attention to the Olympics this last week, it's almost cliche, but as the commentator or one of the athletes is interviewed about what's taking place, what's the thing that they say over and over? You know, what do you want to tell the kids in America? If you, if you believe it, if you dream it, you know, if you, if you just want it bad enough, it's going to happen. In other words, if you will it, it will happen. This is something that we believe. This is something that we tell ourselves over and over again. So then James comes along, and he calls it arrogant. And we're like, whoa, James, how is that arrogant? Isn't that just the way that life works? So he goes on. He gives us a wake-up call. Verse 14, he says this. He says, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. He's saying, with everything that you know, you don't actually know if you're going to be here tomorrow. So you think that you're the one that determines what's going to happen, but you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. Then he goes on. He gets even more direct. He says, what is your life? This is a question. And the question and what he's implying is he's implying that they've lost touch. They're presuming that their will controls the future. And so he says, what is your life? He's, he's implying that they've lost touch with what life is all about, which is true. If you really think that your will is the primary factor in determining the future, you've lost touch with how life works. He goes on. He gets more direct. And he says, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Again, it's like you read this, you're like, whoa, James, take it easy, man. I mean, it's just, this is what I've been told. I've told I was told this is how life works. I thought this is how life works. I apply my will and I get the stuff that I want. And he starts saying, well, you're a mist. I mean, he's saying, he's saying your life is short. It's fragile. I mean, just think about mist. I mean, it, it's real. It exists. You can see it. But it just takes a small change in the environment or the atmosphere and it's gone. Our lives are real. We do exist. We can see each other. We're not figments of each other's imaginations. We're, we are real, but it's short. It's fragile. You know, a mist can will all it wants to. But as soon as the sun comes out or as soon as the wind changes, it's gone. So James is writing to his audience and to us, and he's saying, wake up. It's short. Stop acting like your will is the primary thing. He goes on, he writes this. So after he tells us to wake up, he's addressed the issue of us presuming that our will controls what happens. He writes this in verse 15. Instead, so instead of saying, we will do this, we will do that, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. What this is, is he's getting to what he really wants his audience to focus on. He's saying instead of being arrogant, he wants them to focus on humility and obedience. And this isn't just some flippant saying that he gives them. He's not just saying, hey, you guys have been kind of bragging and boasting and talking arrogantly. You really just need to start talking humbly. No, he's after action. He's after action when he gives this instruction. Because this is said, as you understand what he's saying, this is said by a person who they realize their place in reality, and they've decided what they're going to focus their energy on. Because there's two parts of this statement when he tells them to say this. There's two parts of this. Pay attention to this. It says, says, if it's the Lord's will, we will, first of all, we will live. So he's just made the point that, hey, you don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow. What is your life? Your life is a mist. And then he says, hey, if it's the Lord's will, we will live. What he's saying is the primary factor that determines if you and I have a future tomorrow is not us and our plans, but it's God and his will. That's a really humbling idea. What that means is today, I can, I can have the best plan. 
I mean, I can do, you, you name it, I can have the best plan to put myself in the optimal place to be here tomorrow. But the thing that's gonna determine if Elliot's alive tomorrow is not Elliot's plan and Elliot's will. The thing that's gonna determine if I'm alive tomorrow is God. That's an amazing level of control and power that he has. This is a very humbling statement, and it's said by somebody who's realized the limitations of their personal will in the scope of God's power and his will. So they humbly say, hey, if it's the Lord's will, we will live. Our very life and existence is dependent on him. So that's the first thing. It's a statement of humility, but then out of that humility flows the second part of the statement, which is a statement of obedience. They say, if it's the Lord's will, we will, number two, do this or that. That's a statement of obedience. It's a statement of saying, okay, I know my place. I know where I stand. I know that I'm only here if he allows it. So that means the most important thing for me to do is to do what he wants me to do. Instead of trying to advance my will and get what I want and accomplish the things that I'm after, I need to take my will and put it in the back seat. And if it's God's will, whatever his will is, that suddenly becomes my priority. And if you, if you sit and you think about this, what you realize is that's really the only logical conclusion you can come to. You know, if you, as you start to realize that your will is not the primary thing, your life is short, your life is fragile, you come to terms with how amazingly powerful and in control God is, and you start to wrestle with those two, and the humility that that brings, really the only logical conclusion after you've come to terms with that is to say, well, what does he want me to do? Because if he's real and he's there and he's in control, this level of control, the control to determine if you're here or not tomorrow, then the question is, well, what's his will? What does he want me to do? The humility flows straight in to the obedience. And again, this, this isn't lip service. He's not just saying, hey, this is just a statement that you make. He's after action. We've seen that in the entire book of James. James repeatedly is after us taking this information and applying it. And that's why the, the last thing he says, which this might be the strongest, most direct thing that he says in the passage. Verse 17, he writes this. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. What's, what's the good he's referring to here? Well, the good is God's will. So he's saying, if you know that you're supposed to do God's will and you don't, then that means you're living in sin. A, a language scholar who tried to capture the idea of this verse and how it attached to the idea that came before, he, he translated it this way. He said, no doubt, you agree with the above in theory. I mean, James's audience, they're probably nodding their heads. They're probably saying, yeah, that's right, that's right. I'm supposed to live for God's will. My life is short, my life is fragile. Yeah, my will is not the primary thing. I should live for God's will. Yeah, that's right. They're nodding their heads in agreement. Well, remember, if a man knows what is right and fails to do it, his failure is the real sin. You know, usually when we think about sin, what we do is we kind of have this list of bad things that we're not supposed to do. You know, don't, don't kill anybody, you know, don't, don't cheat on your spouse, don't cheat on your taxes, you know, you know, we just got this list of here's all these bad things that we're not supposed to do. As long as I don't do the bad things, then I must not be living a life of sin. Well, James comes along, and he says, well, that's part of it, but there's another side to it. See, there's all these good things over here, these things that God tells us to do, the things that are God's will for our lives. And what determines if you're not living a life of sin is not just avoiding the bad, but it's, are you choosing to do the good? And if you're not choosing to do the good, 
then what's James's implication? Again, this is, this is heavy. This is a weighty idea. This is an uncomfortable idea, and it should make us uncomfortable. But his implication is if you're not doing the good, then you're living a life of sin. So it's not just about, well, am I avoiding the bad? It's, but am I choosing to do the good? And he's not just trying to get his audience to nod their heads and say, oh, yeah, James, that's right. The issue is action. He's like, you're going you're gonna to prove this in what you do. If you really take this seriously, he's saying, it'll show up in your behavior, in your choices, in your actions. There's another verse that kind of gets at this same idea, and it's in the same chapter, James chapter 4. Bevan talked about it last week. It says this, James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble person, the person that's realized their place in reality and decided to obey God, decided to do his will. He gives grace to that person. This is a, a verse that's repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. It's an incredibly important idea. And it's a verse that in my life, it, uh, it both scares me at one moment, but then it also gives me hope at another moment. It scares me. It makes me very uncomfortable because I know I have this tendency to think that my will is the primary factor. I'm very much a, well, I'm just going to put my head down and I will make it happen kind of person. So I, I easily give in to arrogance, even at times that I don't even think I'm being arrogant. I just think I'm doing what it takes to get the job done. But it's, I'm, I, I can easily give in to this. And there have been times in my life when God has opposed me. And I'll tell you, that hurt. It really hurt to have God stand in my path and block me and oppose me actually work against me because I was working out of arrogance. That hurt. And now in my life, I have more responsibility than I've ever had at any point in my life. That means I've got more on the line. So this scares me. I mean, this is a warning. God opposes the proud. So I, I've got to pay attention to this because I know my tendency. But at the same time that it scares me and it kind of wakes me up to this is serious, there's hope because there's the promise God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The person that humbles himself and decided to do his will, he gives grace. God's grace is his, his muscle applied to our lives. So he doesn't just say, hey, don't do this. Do this over here. Do the good. But actually, as I start to do the good, as I humble myself and start to do his will, he says he's going to come alongside me and he's going to apply his muscle to my area of need or weakness or where I need help, and he's going to help me do that. That's an amazing promise. That's a promise that gives me hope. So my life is not just about, okay, am I avoiding the bad things that I'm supposed to do? But it's, okay, am I humbling myself? Am I doing God's will? Because he promises that that's where the help comes. So then the, the question, and you, you've probably already thought this question, okay, well, that's all good and well, but what's God's will for my life? So I'm supposed to humble myself. I'm supposed to obey and do his will. But what is it? What's, what's God's will? What is it that he wants me to do? Well, simple definition is God's will is what he has commanded us to do. So if you know, want to know God's will, well, what's he, he told you to do? You know, if he's told you to do it, well, then that's God's will for your life. And there's kind of two parts to God's, God's will. There's his general will and then his specific will. His general will, I'll, I'll kind of define these and kind of explain them as I go through it. His general will is the same for everyone. It's the list of the stuff in the Bible that he tells us to do. Stuff like love your neighbor, tell the truth, help other people. If you wrong somebody, you go and ask for forgiveness. If they wrong you, instead of holding on to bitterness, you forgive them. You can go on and on down the list. The, the general will is the stuff that he's already revealed for us to do in the Bible. It outlines 
how we're supposed to relate to him. It outlines how we're supposed to relate to other people. It in detail goes through what our responsibilities are in life. It's his general will. It applies to all of us. And with his general will, you know, it's, he's not going to just magically show up. You're not just going to go home and be sitting in your room and suddenly he's going to appear and be like, here's my general will for your life. The general will has already been revealed. It's in the Bible. So if we want to know these things, okay, well, what has God told me to do? There's just no getting around the fact that it's already been revealed in the Bible. So we need to go and learn what the Bible has to say. So there's his general will. Then there's his specific will. These are the assignments and tasks that he gives to an individual. This is based on on who he's made you to be, who you are physically, your personality, your strengths, your weaknesses, your gifting, the needs of the moment, his specific will, the assignments or the task. Now, usually, when we want to know God's will, this is really what we want to know. The general stuff, it's like, yeah, 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 I know, like, God's already revealed all that stuff in Scripture, you know, we're supposed to treat people that way, yeah, yeah, I know that, I know the general will stuff, but I really want to know, what's the assignment? What's the task? What about how he's gifted me or created me or who I am as a person? What about that that he wants to use for a bigger purpose? What's that specific thing? And often how it works is it's as we, as we take him seriously in the general stuff that then over time he clarifies and he reveals the specific plan. So you start by saying, okay, well, well what does he want me to do? What's the general getting familiar with the Bible, taking that and putting that into practice, and over time, he starts to reveal the specific. So for me, one of the ways that this has worked out is it was in um, college that I really started to get serious about following God. That was the, you know, I grew up in a good family, I got introduced to faith, but it was in college where I had the most freedom I had ever received. So I really got to decide, is this going to be real for me or not? Am I going to do this now that I'm on my own, or is it just going to be something that my parents did and I'm going to go in another direction? So I decided to get serious, and I got really plugged into a campus ministry that was at the university that I was a part of, and started growing and learning different things, how to have a relationship with God, how to treat other people, kind of how to have the right priorities in life, how to think about different things. And one of the things that this campus ministry offered was they would do a um, a week-long trip over spring break up to the mountains, and you could ski and snowboard, and then they would bring in Uh, different pastors and teachers. And so actually they brought in, um, Bevan was one of the speakers, one of the years, my senior year. So I went there. And when I went, you know, I was was really serious. Okay, I want to do what God wants me to do. I, on my radar, I was not thinking, okay, I'm going to move to Huntington Beach and become a pastor of a church. That was not on my radar at all. It wasn't a category for me. So I go to this conference and um, Bevan speaks and I got some time with Bevan afterwards and asked him some questions, got to know him. And I got a really strong sense that the next move for me after graduating was to move to Huntington. That's really all I knew is move to Huntington, get involved at Seabreeze. I talked to some people who are kind of mentors for me to kind of clarify, because there's no verse in the Bible that says move to Huntington Beach. I mean, (laughs) a lot of people wish there was, but there's not. But so I talked to some people to say, hey, am I off base? But I, I really think this is God's next step for me, the specific thing. But it came as a result of taking him seriously in the general stuff. Just what has he told us to do? Okay, focus on doing those things. And then as you do those things, over time, he reveals and clarifies the specific things. And that, that, that pattern has played out time and time and time again in my life. I mean, that's just one example. But I could give you many more examples where it's like, okay, I was just doing the things I knew I was supposed to do. And then over time, God then kind of started to open a door or reveal the next step for me. So instead of just sitting back and saying, well, I really want to know God's will, so I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to sit here. I'm not going to do anything. 
Actually, our first step to figure out God's will is to open up our Bibles and figure out, well, what has he already told us to say? And that often, that's, you know, that's, it's a big book. <laughs> you know, there's a lot in there. So it's like, oh, I, I, how, how am I ever going to figure this out? You know, how am I ever going to figure out everything that God wants me to do? How am I going to figure out his will so that then I can get specific on, well, here's the, here's the assignment or the task. So I got three habits because it is overwhelming and it's going to feel like oh, I could never do this. But three quick habits to get you started with figuring out God's general will. First one, apply what you learn on Sundays. I mean, that's what we do. When we, when we come to church and Bevan speaks or one of the other pastors speaks, we're saying, hey, this is God's will in a different area of life. So when you hear that and you are challenged by something or you're presented with a new idea and you're thinking, hmm, I could do that, or what would that look like in my life? Take that and apply that. You're learning something about God's will and you're putting it into practice. So apply what you learn on Sundays. Second thing, start reading the Bible on your own. It can be simple. It doesn't have to be, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll be talking to somebody and I'm help, trying to help them get started with reading the Bible and they're like, I just, you know, I don't have like two or three hours to just sit and read the Bible. And it's like, well, I don't have two or three hours either. You know, I mean, I just, I just had a kid, you know, I'm like spreading it out throughout the day, but it's like, it could be 15 minutes, you know, just 15 minutes a day. Over time, that adds up. You know, over, over years, you will know a tremendous amount of truth from God's word about how he wants us to live. So start reading the Bible on your own. Take some responsibility and build this, this practice into your life. Number three, ask for help. You know, I've, through sitting here, listening to messages, through reading the Bible, I've learned a tremendous amount of what God wants me to do. But actually, the thing that saved me the most time when I really need it is just going and asking for help in an area of, hey, I'm encountering this in, in my marriage. What in the world does God want me to do in these situations? Or we're having this go on in parenting. What does God say about this area of parenting? Or in business, I'm encountering this. You know, what does God say about how, to, how this dynamic works? And going to people who have a lot more experience practicing this stuff and asking those questions and oftentimes, they'll, they'll point me to a passage or point me to truth from God's word, and it saves me a ton of time. Instead of just, well, I, I don't know, you know, I've got this book that's however many thousands of pages. I don't know where to find it. Well, go and ask. Actually, a great place to do this is in the growth groups. We're actually getting ready to launch growth group signups for the fall in just a few weeks. These are a great place to go and ask questions. Get to know the leaders. Another way that you can do this is, us who are leaders of the church, whether, whether we're on staff or other volunteer leaders, we would love to help answer questions. We've experienced the benefit of this when we've done this, and so we love it when people come and say, hey, I'm wrestling with this. I have a question about this. What's God's will in this area? Ask questions. We would love to get those, help answer those questions so you can start to do God's will in your life. Because there's just no getting around the fact that you and I have these hearts and this tendency to start to think that our will is the primary thing. And we live in a, a society where we are constantly trying to convince each other that our will is, in fact, the primary thing. We're being told this over and over again. I mean, we repeat it without even being aware of it. So what we need to do, instead of putting ourselves in that arrogant position of thinking that we will make it happen, we need to remember who we are. Our life is fragile and short. We need to remember who God is. Our life is in his hands. The number of days are in his hands. He, he controls it. It's his will that's going to determine what's going to happen. So instead of taking that arrogant approach, we need to humble ourselves and then ask the question, what does he want me to do? 
we need to then take the step of obedience and figure out, okay, what is God's will? What is that going to look like for me to do it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that in your word, you have revealed your will to us. You don't leave us in the dark to just guess and figure it out through a process of trial and error, but we can go to your word, the Bible, and get really specific about what you want us to do. There is a tremendous amount of detail and help in there. And so, I, God, I pray that as we are presented with this challenge from James to not be arrogant, to stop saying that we're the ones that are going to make it happen, and instead start saying that if if it's God's will, I'll be alive. And if it's God's will, then those are the things that I'm going to do. And so, God, I pray that we would get really serious about learning what it is you want us to do. And as we learn that stuff, we wouldn't just listen to it and nod our head, but just like James's warning, if we know the good that we're supposed to do, we would actually take that and do that. So, Father, I pray that you would help us because we really need help in this area. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.